movie called Bruce Almighty. And it's a story of a man who gets to play God uh, for just a few days in his life, which is kind of an enticing fantasy, isn't it? Like imagine what you would do with all the that power, all the, the control. We'd probably do you know, goofy stuff like split our soup or something. I don't know. But all of that control in the power in the palm of your hands, it's, you know, it's just so appealing to so many of us. The problem is that, that some of us, like maybe most of us, deep down, we don't really understand it's a fantasy. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Ernest Kurtz wrote what's become the definitive history of the AA movement, Alcoholics Anonymous. And he calls his book, Not God, because he says the fundamental problems alcoholics have is way down deep. They refuse to acknowledge limitation and weakness, being finite and fallen. They tend to live under the delusion that they are in control of everything when the truth is they can't even control themselves. And so he writes, fundamental to the recovery process is that healing and sanity begin with a single realization that I am not God. As simple as that sounds. I'm not God. I'm not in control of my universe. I often cannot even control myself. I violate my own values. I want to do one thing and then I end up doing something else. I've got weaknesses and limitations. And I need help from a power far greater than myself. I am not God. But of course, this I am God illusion is not just limited to alcoholics. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The serpent tells Eve, hey, just eat this fruit and your eyes will be open and you will be like God. That was the first temptation. You're going to be in control. Like you can decide. You don't have to submit to somebody else's wisdom or morality or authority. You can decide what's right and wrong. You can be like God. And people have been falling for that one ever since. You'll be like God. That's at the heart of sin and spiritual confusion. That's why at recovery meetings, they always start with a reminder of spiritual sanity. First thing people say when they talk is, my name is, then they give their name, I'm an alcoholic. Just to get real clear on who I am, I'm not God. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person next to you, okay? And I want you to put their name in instead of yours. And I want you to just say, your name is blank, whatever their name is, and you are not God. Just do that real quick. Yeah, you don't have to argue about it or anything like that. That's good. Yeah, you're not God. It's amazing how how confused we get on this one single principle. Writer Anne Lamont writes, uh, she says, the biggest difference between you and God is God doesn't think he's you. <laughs> See, failure to understand that you're not God can destroy your spiritual life. Uh, so this morning, we're going to study a man who's about to begin to learn this very painful lesson. He is not God. So if you've got a Bible with you, or if you want to use the one in the pew in front of you, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 this morning. We're in the third week of our series on Daniel. And if you missed any of the previous messages, I hope you go back, listen to the podcast, get caught up, uh, because lots of good stuff there. Daniel chapter 2 this morning, we're going to jump in at verse 1. And it says, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. Notice it says, the second year of his reign. He's been king for a little over a year now. Uh, Assyria, which had been Babylon's chief enemy, has completely collapsed about five years earlier. So Nebuchadnezzar is absolute dictator of an empire, and he reigns with unchallenged authority over the known world. 
He's got youth and strength, wealth, fame, power unparalleled in the world. He is the most secure person on the face of the earth. He is a God. That's how people think of him. But he's a God who can't sleep. He's a God with insomnia. And he finds a year into having everything that he's always wanted, that everything is all wrong, and he's troubled. And people who live under this I am God delusion are always just one bad dream, one bad night's sleep away from utter insecurity because they're building a house on sand. In the second year of his reign, he's troubled. He calls his advisors together and he tells them about his trouble, about his dream and so on. Look at verse 4. It says, the astrologers, these are his advisors, they answer the king in Aramaic. Just notice that. We're going to come back to that. But they said, O king, live forever. So let me ask you, at this point, how well do you think his advisors did at reminding him that he was not God? Not not so good. Be eternal, king. May you never die. And I want to give you kind of a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's worldview. It was reinforced by the people around him. See, Nebuchadnezzar saw the world as revolving around him. He's in control. He's in charge. And people exist just to make him happy. He's, it's, the world's there to, to fulfill his joy and pleasure. And a lot of people live under that delusion. We use words like grandiosity or a messianic complex. And Nebuchadnezzar just sees pff, the world revolves around him, so he wants what he wants when he wants it. And he tells his advisors that he wants them to tell him what he dreamed and then interpret it. And they say, sorry, your highness, sorry, sir, we can't help you. And Nebuchadnezzar has kind of a strong response to that. And now we see another aspect to the king's character of this I am God syndrome. So the world revolves around me. People who study human development speak of something called frustration tolerance. They say that people who are mature in character exhibit high frustration tolerance. They're able to exercise patience and delayed gratification and so on. Immaturity, on the other hand, is marked by low frustration tolerance. Like, I want my way, and I want it now. Look at verse 12. The wise men have told the king they can't help him with this particular problem. And this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So how would you assess Nebuchadnezzar's ability to tolerate frustration? High or low? Yeah, low. Execution is an indication of low frustration tolerance, okay? In fact, he loses it so much he gets paranoid. Look at verse 8. Very interesting thing. The king answered, I'm certain you're trying to gain time because you realize this is what I firmly decided. You're just buying time here. If you don't tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things. You're all fakes. Hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The idea here is like, hey, if you can tell me, if you don't tell me what the dream is, if I tell you, you're just going to make up something. You're just like lying to me. But if you can tell me the dream, then, then interpret it. Then I'll know you know what you're talking about. And so he kind of comes up with this conspiracy theory. He's all paranoid now. He's like, I, I see what's going on. You're all in cahoots. There's a conspiracy to tell me misleading and wicked things. You're out to get me. Can you imagine a politician being emotionally immature? Now, see, power has a way of confusing people about who's really at the center of the world. There's a story about Lyndon Johnson when he was president. 
LBJ was having a cabinet meeting one time, and he asked his press secretary, Bill Moyers, who was ordained clergy, I think, uh, uh, but he asked him to, to pray, and so he did. But Moyers is praying real quietly at the other end of the table. So Johnson interrupts him in the middle of the prayer. He says, speak up, Moyers. I can't hear you. He says, well, I wasn't talking to you, sir. <laughs> so here's the thing. Patient acceptance of frustration in everyday life is crucial to the formation of your character. It's a little reminder, you are not at the center of the world. So tomorrow, when you get frustrated, and tomorrow you will get frustrated, you know, something doesn't go your way, or the kids spill something, or a task takes longer than you planned. Instead of getting all bent out of shape, just remind yourself, I'm not God. The world does not revolve around me. It doesn't exist for the purpose of sparing me frustration. So this is a little chance to exercise a little patience. See, Nebuchadnezzar believes he's God and the world revolves around him. So as a result, there's all this self-preoccupation, like, you know, it's, hey, it's all about me. It's about me. And there's this anxiety. He's troubled and inadequacy. He's not able to face the future and fear that something bad is going to happen and he won't be able to handle it. And all this in the second year of his reign. Now, his advisors have another worldview, okay? Take a look at verses 10 and 11. When the king makes this unreasonable request, it says the astrologers answered the king, there's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they don't live among humans. No one can reveal it. No one can help with this problem except the gods, and they don't live among human beings. See, this is the great issue. Does God live on earth? Does God know? Does God care about me? Or am I left on my own to struggle along best I can? See, here's the way his advisors see the world. You know, I live on earth and God's up in heaven, but when I contact him, there's this barrier between God and me, and I'm on my own. And when I have problems, I've got no place to go but right here. No one can solve this problem except God. And he doesn't live on earth. And it's weird because I live like that sometimes. I don't believe it, but I live like that sometimes. Problem comes into my life. Instead of going to God, I just worry. I got a burden, but instead of placing it at his feet, I carry it around. Or I've got an agenda, but instead of surrendering it to God, I try to kind of make it happen on my own. And oddly enough, the result of this way of life, this worldview, ends up being the same as it was for Nebuchadnezzar. Because here, I have to be my own God. And it ends up leading to self-preoccupation. It's all about me. And anxiety, this, this constant state of worry, because I've got to solve everything. And inadequacy, because I know I can't handle that. And fear, these advisors, they've got no hope. They're going to die. And then there's Daniel. And Daniel and his friends, they go to God and they pray. And then he's given the interpretation of the dream. And then in verse 20 and following, there's this magnificent hymn of praise. We're going to come back to this too, but just note for a second this tremendous hymn. He says, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings, even Nebuchadnezzar, and raises... Up others. 
So Daniel gets word to Nebuchadnezzar that he, he can help. And look at verse 26. The king answered Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Look at Daniel's response. Daniel replied, no. No, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. And Daniel refuses to take credit for this. And he goes on to tell the king about his dream in verse 31. He says, Your majesty looked, and, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. And he goes on to describe it. It's got this head of gold and chest of arms of silver and, and belly and thighs of bronze and feet of iron and clay. So this, this awesome image of power. And best of all for Nebuchadnezzar is his own part in this statue. Look at verse 37. He says, your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. Notice how Daniel emphasizes the extent of Nebuchadnezzar's power. He's like, dude, like you're not just like king over the, the human beings. You're king over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And it's like, how did you get to do that? I don't know. They didn't vote for you, but you're king of it. You're in charge of it all. So the dream's going real good so far, but then Daniel keeps going. He says, after you, another kingdom, or could be translated ruler, another kingdom or ruler will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Now, the text doesn't uh, say exactly who they are, and a lot of people try to, you know, pinpoint, you know, historical people, try to guess at what that, but that's not the point. The text doesn't tell us. The point is, at the, at the base of the statue are feet of clay, iron mixed with clay. And Daniel makes it real clear that all this power and all this splendor stands on a merely human foundation. And it turns out to be utterly vulnerable. Not only that, one day, it's all going to blow away. Verse 34, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. If you've ever seen where like wheat gets threshed out, there's this chaff that's just this junk lying at the bottom, just gets scattered to the wind. And that's the picture here. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Down in verse 44, he gives the interpretation of this. He says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. See, Daniel here is prophesying what would be the hinge of human history, of the the entire world. And he wouldn't live to see it. Neither would centuries of people to follow him. And they would wonder, like, will what Daniel prophesied ever come true? And what might it look like? And then one day, an obscure carpenter 
from an obscure town began an itinerant ministry by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is now at hand. You understand why people trembled when they heard those words? Because this is what the world was waiting for. Jesus was the rock not cut by human hands, not prepared by human beings. That's why 1 Peter 2.4, Peter calls him the living stone. It's right out of Daniel. The living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. This in the Old Testament is a vision of the kingdom of God breaking into human history. See, this is Daniel's view of the world. This is his worldview. Here's the earth, okay? And here's my place on it. And I'm just one of lots of other people. And in heaven, there's this great big God, this infinite God, so big that watching over this planet is no trouble for him at all because he's God. He never has a sleep problem. He's never troubled by anxious thoughts or bad dreams. And not only that, but this God, whose kingdom will one day come to earth, has a direct relationship with me. I'm not God, but God knows. And God sees. I'm not God, but I'm God's friend. I'm God's child. Therefore, it doesn't make any difference if I'm just a lowly political prisoner and and you're the most powerful person on the face of the earth. It doesn't really matter. There is a God in heaven. And he's not just in heaven. He's right here. And he knows and he cares. And I'm not God, but I'm his friend. So I'm not on my own. And so Daniel's life is filled with humility instead of self-preoccupation. And with confidence instead of anxiety. And with a sense of sufficiency in his God instead of personal inadequacy. And a spirit of courage, not timidity or fear. I'm not God, but I'm his friend. And when we understand that God's in charge, not us, makes all the difference. Let me give you a couple other implications real quick. So you notice how Daniel has this, this deep desire that Nebuchadnezzar understand spiritual reality, that he comes face to face with the truth. See, when I'm clear that I'm not God and I'm lost apart from God, I will devote myself to helping other people meet the true God. Anyone who's open. I'll take all kinds of risks and pay all kinds of prices in order to help other people meet God because they're lost without him. Just like me. See, among other things, Daniel is a book on evangelism. See, going into exile, which looks like the end of the world, results in giving Daniel this amazing evangelistic opportunity. We've talked in this series about the challenges of being in exile in a culture that is hostile to us as Jesus followers. And Daniel would say, it may be the opportunity of a lifetime to share about God. In verse 4, we saw how the advisors answered the king in Aramaic. And some of you have a little footnote in your Bibles that tell you from here all the way through chapter 7, the text is all in Aramaic. So the first chapter's in Hebrew, like virtually the rest of the Old Testament. But these are six chapters here in Aramaic, which is weird. Like when's the last time you picked up a book and it was in English in the first chapter and the second chapter it changes to Japanese or French or Italian or something? It'd be odd. You wouldn't sell very many of those books. So why does the writer do that? Well, here's what I think. 
See, Aramaic was the most common language of the Middle Eastern world at that time. A little bit like uh, English is in the Western world today. And it's as though the writer were signaling that now God is not just a God of one tribe or one country, one language, but he's the God of the whole world. Another detail I want you to notice, and I won't take time to look at all these verses, but in verses 18 and 28, 37 and 44, there's a name for God that's only used here in the second chapter of Daniel and only in three books in the Old Testament altogether. And it's this phrase, the God of heaven. Usually in the Old Testament, they used Hebrew names for God, Yahweh or Elohim or Adonai. But Daniel wants to make it very clear to Nebuchadnezzar, this God is not just Israel's God. Because that's the way Nebuchadnezzar is used to other uh, people thinking from their countries. Like, oh, we got our gods, you got your gods, everybody's got their own gods. This is not one God among many. This is the true God of the whole earth, the God of heaven. And he's Lord of Babylon as well as Israel. And he's Lord of Nebuchadnezzar as well as Daniel, whether Nebuchadnezzar knows it or not. See, Daniel's evangelizing Nebuchadnezzar. He's using a lot of skill and tact. He gives Nebuchadnezzar the good news first. Hey, you're the head of gold. That's good news. But then he gets real frank. The statue has feet of clay. And one day it's coming down. See, Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God. The God of heaven. And he's going to set things right one day. So you better get right with him. Now you got to understand the drama of this moment. Here you got Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world. Without batting an eyelash, he could just have Daniel killed if he offended him. He's like, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to die. Your kingdom's going to be swept away without a trace, so you better get right with God. And Daniel, Daniel's got lots of reasons to kind of hold back a little bit. He could be killed. But he uses amazing wisdom and incredible boldness. I was thinking, what if we had a whole church of Daniels with that kind of evangelistic boldness? You know, as a church, we get to partner with helping people come to know the true God. It's an amazing responsibility. So I hope you're real bold about that. Look at verse 46. Daniel shares all this stuff and it comes down to this one moment. Okay, this is life or death for Daniel. And in verse 46, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And Nebuchadnezzar begins to open his heart to the God of heaven. Now, is he converted at this point? Not likely. We'll see next week, he's still engaged in pagan idolatry and oppressive violence. But Daniel doesn't give up on him because he knows the God of heaven is at work even on Nebuchadnezzar. See, that's pretty typical of people's spiritual journeys. It's often like two steps forward and one step back. But if I know I'm not God, whoever in my life is, is lost without God, then I'm going to devote myself. I'll take risks. I'll reprioritize my time. Whatever it takes to introduce other people to the God of heaven. Last implication. If God is God and I'm not God, I'm just his friend, then I can stop worrying because I'm just invited to stop worrying. Now, some people, they, they hear that the scriptures say they shouldn't worry and then they feel guilty 
and they worry about worrying too much and it just becomes this vicious cycle. So I just offer this to you as an invitation. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. When worry comes along, just allow it to be a prompting of the Spirit in your mind to remind you, hey, you know what? I'm not God. I don't carry the world on my shoulders because my shoulders aren't big enough. So God, I'm just going to give this to you. Anytime a worry comes, just use it as a little prompt to give it to God. See, Daniel is convinced in this foreign land, under death threat from this tyrant, that his life and his world are in competent hands. So he doesn't have to live in fear. And the writer brings this out in a beautiful and striking way. The end of the story, it says, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. See, Daniel is now going to play at a whole new level. All this opportunity has opened up for him. But here's what's interesting, okay? Because in a story like this, it's at this point, after like God has moved and wonderful things have happened for the main character, Daniel, normally it would be at this point when a hymn of praise would be offered to God saying, oh, thanks God, you know, thank you for this amazing turn of events and I've been honored and, and praised and given this amazing opportunity. But the hymn of praise doesn't come at the end of the story. Where does it come? All the way back in the middle of the story, verse 20. Remember, at the beginning, the king put all the wise men, all the exiles, including Daniel, under a death threat. They're all going to be executed. And when Daniel offers this hymn of praise, he's talked to God and he's received an interpretation, but externally, what's changed? Nothing. Nothing's changed in his situation. He's still under a death sentence. He hasn't even met with Nebuchadnezzar yet. Doesn't know if he's going to be able to. Nebuchadnezzar could refuse to see him, or he could see him and then get offended uh, by what he says and execute him, or he could laugh at him. All kinds of possibilities to worry about. Nothing's changed except Daniel knows this great big God has spoken. He knows who's driving the bus. That's enough. And he can trust God. And the writer does this with great skill. See, as readers in verse 20, we have no idea yet how the story is going to turn out. And we're asked to praise God with Daniel in the middle of a story we don't know the end to yet. Why would the writer do that? Because that's my life. That's your life. Anybody got any problems? You're in the middle of your story. We meet here week after week, year after year. We do life together, and every time we do, every time we gather back here, we do what Daniel did right here. We praise God in the middle of our stories. And we don't know how they're going to turn out. Maybe something exciting and wonderful things are going to happen. Maybe some real difficult and painful things are going to happen. We don't know how the story is going to turn out, but we know who's driving. And we know whose hands the world's in. We can trust in his care and confidence. So we gather together in the middle of our stories. We pour pour out our hearts in worship and adoration of this God who holds times and seasons in his hands, who sets kings and CEOs and presidents up and brings them down. So this week, just take a vacation from worrying. Anytime you feel a little anxiety, just stop and say to yourself, I'm not God. 
I'm just his real good friend. Would you stand with me now for closing prayer? Our dear Heavenly Father, we get so confused sometimes and we think the world revolves around us and we think that we're in control. And it's only when we, we remember, I'm not God. I'm not in control. But there is one who is in control. And we can come to you. We don't have to worry. We can come to you no matter what. Thank you for that confidence. Thank you for the fact that we don't have to carry the burdens of this world around on our shoulders. Lord, I just pray that you would give us hearts for those who don't yet know you personally. That we would be bold. That we would do whatever it takes to introduce people to the true God. Because there's nothing better. So God, thank you on this Father's Day. Thank you for being our Heavenly Father. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. Give us wisdom now to know what to do with what we've heard. And give us the courage to do it. We ask all this in, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.